Chicago, 1919. In Europe, the World War is over. American soldiers are going home. There is joy in the air. Across America, this soon turned into blood and tears. No! This is a red summer of 1919. Red summer is a term that was coined by James Weldon Johnson, who was an executive secretary of the NAACP, and he called this reign of terror Red Summer because he said it best described the blood that ran in the streets. That summer of 1919, as many as 26 cities were the sites where these massacres and race riots occurred. Barren, strange fruit. Indiscriminate targeting, it seems, Winston. It's random. While you're black, you're liable to be attacked and killed. White mobs descended on black neighborhoods, pulling black people off of streetcars, beating them with their fists, clubbing them and killing black people indiscriminately. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. I'm grateful for this opportunity, Winston. In your book, Glenn McKay, The Making of a Black Bolshevik, you make incisive remarks about this turbulent period in American history. And of course, what inspired McKay's famous poem, If We Must Die. The poem came out of the crisis of 1919 when African-Americans were being mobbed and killed by racist thugs coming back from the First World War and didn't like the position that African-Americans have managed to achieve in the interim while they were away in Europe fighting. American white men did everything to put you in your place. But black people are fighting in this war. They have gone overseas to fight. And they were very, very successful. There was a group called the Harlem Hellfighters. And they received accolades about their courage and their success. And so when they come back to this country, they have a sense that they have fought for their country, died for their country in many cases, and that their country will treat them differently. They had to stand up and fight. They had to resist in order to protect themselves. And what is interesting is that many of the black soldiers from the First World War operated as protectors of the black community. Okay. In Chicago and in Washington, D.C., there's documented evidence of these veterans, these black veterans, using their military skills to protect the black community. So what was the police doing? I mean, the authorities, what Oh, the there... police were quite often a part of the mob, you know, okay. sometimes, yes. Oh. Yes, yes, sometimes they were in uniform and sometimes they weren't. 
in Omaha, there was an allegation that a man named William Brown had raped a white woman. He's arrested, and a mob starts to form outside of the courthouse. Law enforcement said, we're not going to hand this person over. And the mob just got louder and bigger, and they started shooting into the building. They started to set fires at the doorways, people waving American flags. Uh, I mean, it was considered some sort of patriotic act that they were attacking a U.S. courthouse. They scale the walls of the courthouse, demanding the blood of a black man. The mayor, who's liberal-minded, tries to intervene and keep the mob from lynching him. They nearly tear the white mayor apart. And finally, they pull Brown to the mob, and they hang him. They shoot him more than 100 times. And then finally, someone cuts the rope. His body drops to the pavement. They beat him. They spit on him. They dismember him. And then someone grabs a new rope, ties him to the back of a car, and then they pull him through the streets. And then they pour kerosene on his body. Tell us about the broader context for these developments. Population had changed quite significantly with what they refer to as the Great Migration during the First World War when people had the opportunity to get industrial jobs that they didn't have access to before. And that was because, you know, the white men were abroad fighting. In 1900, nine out of every ten African Americans still lived in the South, and 80% of them worked as sharecroppers. Sharecropping was a lazy descent into hell, as one historian put it. Uh, African Americans found themselves in economic relations which, which differed in many ways very little from their experiences as slaves. Plantation owner would uh, have people to work on his plantation. Usually they say rent free, but he gives you what we call a furnished, uh, which is an advance. Whether you kept records of it or not, the big man kept the record. So you were very fortunate sometimes at the end of the year, like in uh, December, you were very fortunate if you came out with a profit. They would always say, you almost cleared the books. Almost. By law, these landowners could keep their books secretly. So the tenants were never allowed to see the status of their own accounts nor question the prices they were given for their crops. At the end of the year, every year, my father got paid. And the way he got paid, it was not in money. He got paid by getting a big barrel, like that high from the ground. He got a big barrel of flour. Uh, a tin can of uh, what we call molasses, and then they give us another can of lard. That was my father's pay, and that's all he got. There was virtually no industry in the Deep South. Slavery had ended in 1865 with the end of the Civil War, but after Reconstruction, that period from 1865 to 1877, when the federal troops withdrew from the South, these the Union Army that had fought against the Confederates 
who were fighting to keep their slaves. The Republicans basically betrayed black people and withdrew the force uh, of protection that they had. You had a situation in the 1890s where over 200 African Americans were being lynched every year in the Deep South, where African Americans who had, at least for black men, had won the right to vote, lost it in the 1890s and the turn of the century with the imposition of new white supremacy state constitutions throughout the region. You had the imposition of racial segregation in public accommodations so that states and city councils passed laws on interaction between blacks and whites. Uh, the city of Birmingham, Alabama passed a local ordinance making it illegal for blacks and whites to play checkers together. These laws legally established a segregated society and informally turned a blind eye to white violence, particularly lynchings against African Americans. To protect themselves from Jim Crow society, African Americans began a slow migration out of the Deep South. During this period, they're working in the factories and setting up their own businesses. In a relative sense, they had more freedom. However, because they started to succeed and those communities grew, that became a point of real tension. And then eventually riots erupted. Did the media have a role to play in all of this? Well, you have the newspapers uh, exaggerating and making up stories uh, about black men uh, attacking white women and stuff like that. A lot of it was complete fiction. Yeah. And the Washington Post was particularly notorious in, oh, wow. in, in doing that at the time. We know that the Washington Post printed a headline calling for the mobilization of white mobs. And we know that other newspapers across the country reprinted the story that ran in the Washington Post during that race riot of 1919. Very different newspaper at the time to what it is today. Uh. Today it's a liberal newspaper, then it was very conservative reactionary. We now know a lot more about the Red Summer. What about Claude Marquet himself? Mackay was born in Jamaica in 1890, a known poet and writer. Mackay entered the United States in 1912 to study at Tuskegee, Bukti Washington's institution in Alabama. He hated it. <laughs> what was he supposed to be studying? Scientific agriculture. The idea was that he would study agriculture and go back to Jamaica and live among the peasantry and it spread new ideas, new techniques of mm. growing crops and so on. The that British, should be exciting. Yeah, that was exciting. But, uh, but as he says, that the British who were supposed to be advising people at the time didn't know what they were talking about quite often and caused people's crops to get destroyed rather than enhanced. He went to Kansas, actually. He went to Kansas State College. So he was studying the same subject when he was in Kansas, but he was doing English as well and various humanities. And then he finally decided to drop out there as well. And now, to Mackay's famous poem, If We Must Die. Hmm, 
Yeah, it sounds deeply personal. In a very profound way, because he was a Pullman waiter at the time. Oh yeah, the men hired to work as porters on the trains, mostly black. It talks about the fact that they were going from town to town and they didn't go and relax as they normally would because they were worried that they might be ambushed. They went about as a group so that they couldn't be pounced upon unsuspectingly by a mob. trees bear strange fruit blood on the leaves if we must die let it not be like hogs hunted and penned in an inglorious pot while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs making their mock at our accursed lot if we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. <coughs> oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows, deal one death blow what though before us lies the open grave like men we'll face the murderers cowardly pack pressed to the wall dying but fighting back billy holiday's version of strange fruit and mckay's original recording in part two mckay goes to harlem He keeps writing. He starts a Caribbean restaurant. Oh, yes. I can solve fish, rice and peas. <laughs> he had a friend with him, but it didn't work. So I don't think he was such a businessman. <laughs> oh, well. He becomes a leading light of the Harlem Renaissance. We follow his steps as he visits London, Paris and the Soviet Union. Incredible encounters, fascinating stories. Join us.